And welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Uh, Here, hear news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred. Uh, well, as you all know, I'm a big fan of talking to the people behind the stories, uh, actors, directors, producers, writers, and is often the case, those who wear all the hats, as does my guest today, someone who needs little introduction, Roger Gregg. Uh, Roger Gregg's Crazy Dog Audio Theater is responsible for a wide range of top-caliber audio drama work, uh, from the side-splitting hilarity of Bill Lizard to dark satire like The Last Harbinger, and serious, hard-hitting drama like the story we most recently heard, The Salmon of Blackpool. This is the second time I've spoken to Roger, and this time around I wanted to learn a little bit more about what goes into the production of a crazy dog story, in particular about the dark and wonderful drama I just mentioned at the Salmon of Blackpool. Uh, things like field production, actors, what people thought about this work, and we the conversation leads almost inevitably towards uh, the grim state of audio theater in the world, and also we try to find an uplifting note in only about how much we all love this wonderful medium. I hope you enjoyed the insights of Roger Gregg as much as I did. Hardly needs any introduction. Had the uh, great opportunity, uh, of course, to hear uh, Roger Gregg's newest work, uh, The Salmon of Blackpool, as well as to speak to him about uh, the story, um, get him back on the line to go a little bit more in depth about uh, the origins of that story and what uh, he's up to lately. Roger, uh, thanks so much for speaking with us uh, again on Radio Drama Revival. No problem. I'm always happy to talk about radio drama. Uh, The difference between uh, last time we spoke, we spoke generally about your work, um, Crazy Dog, um, and some of your thoughts about the craft. And this time I'd actually like to hear more about um, uh, your work in particular, uh, in particular The Salmon of Blackpool, um, since it did have some differences from other stuff you've done and also a lot of similarities. But uh, starting w- way at the beginning, uh, what inspired you to write this particular story? Well, it started as a general idea. Originally it was going to be about a um, stand-up comedian. I, I suppose I should, we should tell him what the story is first. There is this this Irish movie star who grew up in Cork City, who has gone off, uh, left Cork City when he was uh, 21-22-ish, and found fame and fortune in the United States. And for years, people didn't even know that this guy was Irish. He kept all his roots a secret, as if he had something very dark and menacing in his past that he, that he didn't want people to, to know about. He had a fantastic career in Hollywood, made all these movies, and then... Um, Lo and behold, he finds himself uh, face-to-face with a fatal illness, which he he can't win the battle against. And so, for some strange reason, he decides to return home and spend his his last days uh, in seclusion in his hometown, keeping it all a secret so that he can, well, just be left to his own devices and not be hassled by the media or anything. And uh, your question, how did it all start? Well, it actually started with me thinking, well, there was something about a a stand-up comedian who just didn't feel like laughing anymore. Huh. So so I, I made myself listen to a bunch of stand-up comics, uh, CDs and old albums and things, and read a bunch of books about stand-up comedians. The more I played around with the idea in my head, I thought, well, maybe it's a stand-up comedian, and then I thought, well, maybe it's a musician, you know, and eventually it became an actor. And, uh, and the Cork City thing, because, um, well, I'm... Cork is kind of my spiritual home. It's where I, when I left America to live abroad or to study abroad in the 70s when I was a university student, I ended up at UCC, which is University College Cork in Cork City. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the place that really twisted my head around backwards or upside down or something. And uh, that's where I ended up uh, returning to and living there throughout the 80s, from 1980 to 89. 
so a lot of my old friends and cronies and uh, people that I have roots going back now 27, 28 years with are all Cork people. And uh, Cork is a peculiar kind of strange place. I don't know if there's a place like it in uh, maybe Chicago. If people always go on about, oh, New York is great, New York is big, Los Angeles is great, Los Angeles is big. Yeah, they're the cities that matter in America. Nothing else happens of any interest anywhere else, only just in Los Angeles, thanks to movies, and New York, thanks to the theater, you know. And then if you're from Chicago, you go, well, wait a minute, you you guys, you, stuff goes on in Chicago, let us in, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of what, Cork is the number two city, and it stands in the shadow of Dublin. And there's kind of a smugness. They call them culchies here in Dublin, which is uh, anybody from the country, from, from outside of the Dublin city limits, basically. Okay, because that was uh, another thing that uh, struck me was how um, uh, Cork is portrayed. Um, obviously, you know, as an author, you had a lot of strong opinions about Cork, but the uh, characters seem to have, a, um, at least in my interpretation, a low opinion, but a uh, a, a sort of a loving, uh, almost like a relative that you can't get rid of kind of opinion. Uh, is is that, would you say, characteristic of a lot of people who uh, are from Cork or experience Cork, that sort of a love-hate relationship? Yeah, well, we're generalizing, but it's a, it's a love-hate thing. People like growing up there. They they like living there, but at the same time, the, t- the, the town, it's a small city, so if you have big city dreams, like any small city anywhere in the world, you have to leave that place, to, you know, if you... If you want to be a writer or an actor in the United States and you're from Youngstown, Ohio, or Polka Falls, Idaho, or Horse Flap, Montana, yeah. you, you have to leave these places and you have to go to the big city, um, you know, and you, you kind of resent the fact that you have to leave, but leave you must if you want to pursue these kind of careers. And that's kind of what uh, happens with Cork people, or a lot of them, is that they end up uh, migrating to Dublin or even further afield to to find work in in various areas and stuff. Sure. And there's a rice cork humor as well. That that there's a there's a story, a joke that's told in the play, which is a which is a classic cork joke about the cork lobsters. Mm-hmm. Cork people say that to each other, and they roll around with tears of laughter in their eyes. And uh, there's a uh, bunch of lobsters in a hot in a tank in a restaurant in Cork, and an American tourist comes in and. He sees all these lobsters and goes, wow, that's amazing. And the the cork uh, waiter says, you know what, you've never seen lobsters in a tank before? And the American tourist says, no, 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 and uh, back home we have lobsters, but we have to keep a lid on the tank because the lobsters keep crawling out, trying to escape. And the w- w- waiter says, oh, don't worry about it. They're, uh, these are cork lobsters. Oh, you know, what's a cork lobster? Well, if any one of them tries to get out, the rest of them drag them back down again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's um, that's part lot. of the Irish thing too. Is that sure. uh, you know, if you if you if a man drives by in uh, in New York City or practically anywhere in America in a big shiny Rolls Royce or Cadillac, the the father of the working class kid says, "Look, son, if you work hard, someday you too can be a rich guy and drive around in a Cadillac." Whereas in Cork, they say, who, who, is, who, the, who, the, who the hell does that guy think he is, that he's better than us? He's one of us. Why is he, why is he driving around like mm-hmm. that? That's kind of the more prevalent attitude. Okay, and I, I think there's a... It, it's interesting. Without a, This play has very few scenes that are actually set out and about in Cork, but yet um, you know, the this, this sense of setting is, is so a dominant part of uh, the backdrop of the tale. 
Uh, and did you intend or, or did you set it out for it to be as dark as it ended up being? Or is that something that your characters uh, took you down? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, well, usually with a Hollywood story, there has to be a happy ending. There has to be light at the end of the tunnel. If uh, the famous quarterback is dying slowly of leukemia and we're going to make a movie about it, we have to show that he goes out smiling and somehow when people walk out of the cinema after seeing Brian's song or Love Story or something, they have to walk out with some kind of hope and uh, reassurance that human life is worth living and that there is dignity and nobleness and bravery and true love and courage and compassion and some, and they have a good reason to get up the next day. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was in university, I spent a couple of years working in a convalescent home in Michigan, and uh, I saw a lot of beds that were full one day and empty the next. And over a course of a couple of years, I saw a lot of people fade away and go out uh, neglected, lonely, bitter, frightened, deserted, abandoned and it was ugly and dirty and and terribly tragic and sad and uh and i thought well you know if if someone has a debilitating illness and they're fighting it not everyone goes out like heroes some people don't have the people around them to to help them be brave to support them and so on and stuff so in my story i i wanted to go there i wanted to you know the man in question, our main character is an alcoholic and uh, extremely well maladjusted yeah, just because he least. gets this uh, illness which is going to take his life. It doesn't stop him from being an alcoholic or from being extremely maladjusted. In fact, it just it just makes his anger and his uh, maladjustment all the worse. And I that's what I wanted to portray in the series. Not that there's complete darkness. I think there is a ray of hope. I mean, he learns to laugh, and he does make a friend in a, in a strange way towards the end, and he, and he actually ends up being a, a kind of guardian angel to someone else and using his wealth for good, doing, doing someone else a good turn and, and, and not be, certainly not being able to be in a position to you know, get anything back from it. So he, he actually gave of himself at the end. So there, I think there is a bit of light in it as well, but, but it's... It, but it's I wanted to try to keep the balance between someone going out in a not very pretty way and an, and also a tiny bit of light as well. Sure. And, and did you feel that this was um, different uh, than some of your other works? Obviously, you know, you've had um, a lot of pieces of comedy, you know, obviously. Oh, well, yeah, certainly. I mean, 85% of everything we do is, is comedies or light, mm-hmm. and they can be extremely silly lampoon farces or or they can just be kind of uh, dark comedies about uh, office politics but uh, or, or or political satire in a more kind of serious way but yeah they're comedies whereas this was a uh, an out and out uh, drama yeah. and did you re- encounter any resistance either uh, on part of uh, you know the RTD who, who uh, released it or uh, you know the actors adjusting to a different feel or did that go smoothly no, I mean, if I could, uh, Morgan Jones, who plays the doctor in it, I mean, uh, he he puts his cards on his table. He loves doing comedy. Comedy is what he loves to do. Uh, he considers himself a comedian first and foremost, and and then an actor. So I mean, he's uh, so 
he goes along where I write for him to go, but his choice would be to do funny stuff and make people laugh. Whereas Dave Murray, who plays the lead, he plays the the dying movie star Johnny Gallagher. Dave uh, said to me that this was, in his opinion, the best thing that Crazy Dog had ever done, and it's his uh, strongest dramatic role. Dave, by the way, is playing Destro in the forthcoming movie G.I. Joe. <laughs> so uh, he signed a um, uh, three-picture three contract with Paramount, so he's based in Hollywood now. I don't know if we'll ever see David again. Wow. We might be all saying, see that guy? He used to work on radio. <laughs> so from uh, playing a movie star to being a movie star. Exactly, yeah. Truth is stranger than fiction. Oh. We were even talking about, you know, maybe someday he'll be in a position to turn Sam the Blackpool into an actual movie and he can uh, start it himself. Brilliant. Uh, you know, and one thing, uh, you know, people have kicked around the term in, in these audio drama circles about audio cinema. And this, of all the things I've heard, is the closest that to that. I think there's a, it's shot, you know, you have the, uh, you, the, the frame of narration is uh, um, Richie reading the story to Johnny as he's not able to function. And uh, it has the cut, pan, um, that whole feel to it. And then the production value is also very much uh, that audio movie. Is that something that was very intentional as you were putting it together, both uh, the writing and the production, to make it uh, seem like a movie? Yes, that was intentional. That was, uh, and it was also a, a trick, a shorthand. You have a guy reading out a script, and so he, you know, he says, first we, we do some establishing shots of the house, and it's sitting up on a hill, and there's a big gate, and, and the car slowly drives up the drive to this huge mansion with all these meticulously cultivated rose bushes and trimmed hedges, you know. So right away, right. your narrator who's reading this from a script is putting these pictures in the listener's head and in, in, a, you know, in a very shorthand kind of way. So you can move and you can leap and you can do everything that a narrator needs to do. And then it's, it's just uh, seamless, seamlessly happens through the story because you have a character sitting in a chair reading a script out loud to another character and and then it it kind of pan you know it kind of what do you call it crossfades into right. whatever the scene is that he's describing in the script yeah and uh production wise um you just actually sent me a couple pictures I'll might put a couple on the website if you don't mind uh, please do yes and uh and it shows uh, these scenes that are being recorded people in different rooms and I I know you you talked about infidel had been recorded on the uh, in the location I think this one was as well yeah this one was all recorded on location in in different rooms in my house and in my father-in-law's house uh, and in uh, automobiles and out in a laneway. There's a scene where um, it's supposed to be an outtake from one of the from the last movie that the movie star has made, and where he has this huge, God Almighty, temper tantrum on the set because he's convinced that someone's fooling around with his shoes because he keeps tripping, which is the first sign of the onset of this illness, which he doesn't realize. And uh, we, for that scene, we recorded it outdoors down a laneway, and we had to find a f quiet f corner in a kind of lane. We, we call them laneways here. It's a, I don't know, like, like an alley. Okay. We, we set the levels. Mark McGraw, our sound engineer, set the levels, and I said, Dave, we're going to go for this for real, and nobody laughed because we're going to do this in one take because, Dave, you have to lose your head. You have to just completely scream at this guy. You, you know, your character is this obnoxious um, bully, who's a movie star, prima donna, he gets everything his own way, and something's going wrong, so he just loses it, and Dave says, okay, fine, I can do that. Because I, I, Dave is good at roaring and anger. It's one of his uh, 
things. And uh, I sent you a couple pictures of it. And you can see us holding the script, standing around the lane. And Dave shouted at the top of his voice. I mean, just roared. And he just, I said, you know, you're angry. That's the script. You're angry. And because this has gone wrong. So at a certain point, he's reading the script, reading the script. And then after that, he just improvises everything and just improvises hollering and shouting abuse at everyone, the sound engineer, the costume, <laughs> the makeup girl, the sound editor, the guy holding the boom, the camera guy, the director, the assistant director, uh, director of photography, you know, just, and he just, <laughs> and everyone is just, Dave is roaring at the top of his voice, I mean, until he's hoarse, and we're recording all this, and it goes on for like good two minutes, and at the end of it, we say, cut, 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 and everyone just falls around laughing. <laughs> is, is that the picture? We had it. Yeah. Thankfully, because uh, we weren't going to get that again. Yeah. And we're walking out of the laneway, and along comes a cop car, <laughs> really slowly, because the neighbors had heard all this going on in the alley with the shouting and screaming and everything, and they called the police. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, but the, they drove by slowly, and then they saw us with this huge uh, boom microphone and everything, yeah. and uh, there's, you know, we're all smiling and laughing, so they they knew it wasn't us, or if it was us, it was all a joke or something weird anyway. Right. Is, is that the picture I see of him? Uh, looks like he's charging, and there's a, and there's a guy in a white hat sort of meekly yeah, exactly, j- jumping yeah, back. Yeah. It's Morgan is playing the film director, and Dave is playing the outraged movie star. Uh, and and so obviously it sounds like they did have uh, quite a bit of fun. In uh, film production is you know it adds so much life to it, and I think that's something that um, you're not unique in doing, but maybe the best at or more you know able to do that. What are some of the other things that you love about field recording? Well, you can get it to sound real. That's that's you can't, you know. No matter how, uh, well, no, you can. You can fool the listener to believe that you're outside by recording inside. I mean, there are dead booths and stuff. The BBC have them, and RT has them, where you can kind of, you can put in your background sound afterwards, and then in post production, it sounds in inverted commas outdoors. And to anybody, it sounds outdoors. But if you actually recorded that scene outdoors, you would suddenly get a different. Per- uh, performance from the actors because, first of all, people you know indoors are, they're talking with their volume knobs at two to four, and mm-hmm. once you go outside, uh, people are talking from three to seven outdoor, yeah. and so <clears throat> that just gives it a different tone, a different uh, quality altogether. So, so there's no there's no substitute for going outdoors and, and stuff. And then also, uh, this is this is kind of related or runs parallel to it. I I often like to have actors go off the script, you know, that they read through the scene once or twice, and we just rehearse the scene once or twice, and then I say, okay, you know, but what I want now is, uh, like I just said, I want Dave to just walk around the place, kicking things, smashing, you know, bumping, pushing people. I want to hear you hitting the bodies of all these people, because everyone is just intimidated by you, so no one's going to say anything about it, really. It's, it's all the focus is on this movie star going mad, so forget the script. You know what he's on about. You know why he's angry, so just go with it and play it for real. And so, so there is no, there's no scripts, and you can go, and you can, um, and you can really go for it, you know, because usually it's the a problem in radio drama over and over and over and over again. You hear productions where actors are acting from the throat up because God forbid they're sitting in a chair. Uh, sitting at a microphone when really in the scene they're supposed to be standing. So right away that's not going to sound like they're standing because they're sitting. That puts their voice in a different place. And uh, 
and if they're running or uh, fighting or you know or on the move, um, it's what cinema does and what what theater can do and you know what cinema especially does is is you you're moving a scene instead of just sitting down and and talking. The two actors are talking as they're climbing the steps up to the thing. You know, yeah. the the you know the policeman arrives at the at the SWAT team, and the the hostage is holding the woman inside the bank. And so you know the policeman doesn't sit in the car and just talk, roll down the window and say, "So what's going on? Brief me." Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. what's the situation? And they sit there. No, no, no. The cop guy gets out of the car and they go dashing into the. Uh, the temporary command post, and on the way, he's saying, you know, fill me in, what's the story? And they're walking really fast, and the story's this, and on the move, and then, you know, they're all walking, and people are dashing by holding papers and reports, and people are on the phone, and it's all on the move, you know? Mm-hmm. And to get that cinema field, feel in radio drama, you need to try to think in terms of uh, moving scenes so that actors are not just sitting down all the time talking, that they're, they're on the move, you know, mm-hmm. instead of just having a conversation try to have the conversation when they're climbing the stairs, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that really makes it sound like a movie. And then when you put music in in post, I mean, that really, really puts it over the, to, to, into the audio cinema bracket. Yeah, and, and uh, I I've also want to comment on the music. Obviously, you know, one of the songs plays as sort of a narrative thread, a whole uh, sort of the crux of the story relies on Sinead's song. Is this another one where you uh, wrote and uh, produced all the music yourself? Yes. Excellent. And how did you uh, find uh, her voice, or did that uh, just sort of organically come from well, the script? I'm a. There's a group shot there somewhere in that in the pictures that I sent you, and most everybody in that group shot are graduates of the Gaiety School of Acting. And every year, I for the last six or seven years, I've been teaching a week-long course on radio drama. And uh, my students don't know it, but they're busy auditioning for me, and I'm <laughs> looking for new, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> always on the lookout for new voice talents and really good actors who who have good ears and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that girl, Sarah, who's just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, mm-hmm. look in the photograph. She's she's going to be something someday i definitely think so because she's just she's beautiful and she has the voice of an angel she just sings divine and she acts wonderfully so i said you know i'm going to write a write a play and, and put you in it because and she's from cork as well and the story was set in cork so i came up with the the chords of a tune and i wrote the lyrics and then um and then there are scenes where she's playing the character Sinead. you can there's a photograph there of me sitting at the piano in our in our my living room Oh, yeah. uh, with with Sarah next to me, looking at the lyrics, and I'm playing it. So that so that that there's a scene where her character plays at the grand piano in the dining room for the mm-hmm. movie star. She plays one of the songs that she wrote. So when we recorded, we recorded in my living room with me playing the piano, but Sarah right next to me. So it sounds as if the sound source is the same, the piano and the voice. So she's singing the song to the movie star. I'm playing the piano, and Mark McGraw, our sound engineer, is recording it all. Yeah, brilliant. And there's a couple times where the song happens in situ, like in the scene, the the, the character Sinead plays the song for Johnny, the movie star, and he, he kind of falls in love with her, and he falls in love with this song, so he, he insists that she keeps playing it all the time. But then I also use it as the soundtrack music, and for that we go into my recording studio, and uh, and... There I play it on the keyboards, but there's another photograph of me working in Pro Tools, and you can see that I have, um, that's the tune there, and I have it all up on MIDI. You can see the MIDI language written out. 
and then I can then use the synthesizer and the keyboards and so on to to orchestrate an arrangement for it. I kind of try to do like a clonid uh, Celtic-y kind of vibe to it. And then I had Sarah sing uh, the lead line, and we got a good take of that. And then I had Sarah kind of improvise a couple of backing vocal lines, and I had good uh, good takes of those. Between all those different elements, I had the makings of the soundtrack music, so there were times where I could just use the one backing vocal or two backing vocals or two backing vocals plus the strings and so on, so that it's the same tune, but it keeps being varied all the time throughout the whole show and then in the end you end up hearing the kind of you end up hearing the kind of song over the radio because in the story she's gone on to re- to record it in Hollywood as a you know when when Johnny organizes her her big break into Hollywood kind of thing well wow. and uh you know I'm not uh certainly not alone in in loving this tale and uh you know as much as I've loved all the other pieces uh you know infidel just such a huge range from the you know, Infidel was quite serious. To Harbinger was quite serious, yet funny. Um, some of the other stuff, I even just started listening to Diabolical uh, Theater, and that's um, wonderful in a whole different way. Uh, but this is is definitely um, there's just something so special about this story. It's so moving, and uh, even as dark as it is, it is uh, you know just so terribly moving and and a touch of uh, upliftment at the end. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and I hope more about Dave. Yes. Absolutely. You kind of like Johnny Gallagher, don't you? You you have to. Um, don't you, you? You start to understand him and get get in, get to you know to feel his pain, uh, which is not easy. I hope so because Dave and I had big conversations about it, and he said, "Look, look, Rog, you know this this Johnny guy. He he can't be a prick. You know, mm-hmm. I know he's being awful to everybody, but he he we can't." Keep thinking he's a prick, and I go, well, Dave, that's why you're playing the part, <laughs> because uh, we need someone who's a rogue, uh, kind of a Jack Nicholson character type of portrayal, so mm-hmm. that you, you know, he's a bad guy, but you still like him anyway, yeah. and you want to see what happens to him next, because you, you know. So you're telling me he got the note right? Then. Yeah, every That's episode was thing. completely irresistible, um, and has that been the response? Have you gotten um, uh, much feedback from this piece? Yeah, from you and from Rich Frolich in Texas and Brian uh, Price out in Dakota. He wrote me about how wonderful Blackpool was. And um, a woman named Carrie Morrow and her son emailed me from New York, and they had heard the series. And yeah, and we got another one this morning. Uh, Butch D'Ambrosio, um, who's involved with Natifa, said, uh, you know, high praise to me. So it's, uh, you know, I, I've, I've gotten a few people who... Not, not I, I shouldn't say, uh, didn't, I guess didn't know what to make of it. People who had heard other stuff like Infidel went to this is like, wow. You know, I, and I think they, they enjoyed it, but it, at first it was, uh, you know, sort of disarming when if maybe you're expecting a comedy, you're expecting something, and this just defies expectations. You know, no one is producing hard-hitting drama in, in audio, not, not that I've heard. Tell me about it. I was just a Natif uh, script judge, along with Butch and... Uh Mac Chamberlain, is it? And uh, we went through 40-some-odd scripts, and it was very uh, very discouraging. Mm. You know, there's kind of a lot of, uh, I generalize, but a lot of old-time radio recreations and stuff that harkens back to old-time radio. And bound up with that, there's a lot of kind of uh, teenage mutants from outer space invading giant Japanese rubber monsters, right. uh, 
proton energy pills and um, that kind of light light stuff, which is fun, which is fun, but it's not uh, yeah, drama. <laughs> not heavy drama, no, yeah. no. And then conversely, there was others that were mm. uh, just basically excuses for an author to get up and rant about uh, oh, abortion on demand and mm. the union struggle and other things, which which had a lot of political message, but not really much engaging characters and drama and stuff. And then there were a few others that would, that had, you know, like uh, a soft blue light shines through the, through the window as Mary enters stage left. Right. <laughs> she pauses in central stage as spotlight slowly rises, you know. <laughs> yeah, not, not too useful. <laughs> a radio, the radio script thing, yeah. you know. It's like, what, what are you... <laughs> Yeah. So. This was the other direction I wanted to go in because, um, you know, you are so on the leading edge of what can be done with radio, but there's so little else being done. Um, and what, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the situation before, but what other forces or what other, you know, situations do you think um, has led to radio's pretty sorry state right now? Well, this all goes back to economics. It all goes back to turning a profit, mm-hmm. you know, and that goes back to like how much money are we taking in, and uh, how much money do we have to pay out, and the clock. There's 24 hours in a day. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to fill it with? And then there's the competition. What are the, what are uh, and also listening figures, which everybody, even the BBC, pretend they're not slaves to, but they actually mm-hmm. spend a lot of time fretting over it. And so, um, if if it's just a commercial situation, just um, just nothing but the marketplace, well, then uh, radio drama doesn't have a, a freaking hope in hell right. because uh, there's nothing that beats a person spinning and grinning, as we used to say, just playing records, or they're not even records anymore. Mm. And now you don't even need a person doing it. You can get a robot and select your top 40 in it. It'll play for eight hours and circulate them and also drop in your jingles and, and it'll traffic all your ads and it'll do it all. And um, kind of like a lighthouse keeper yeah. type of technology. You don't actually need a man in the lighthouse anymore. It's just uh, some guy to repair the machine and, tr- and tr- take a little boat out to the lighthouse once every six months to make sure the machine's running okay and back again. And that's what's happening to radio in the United States is that uh, more and more automation so that they can make more money mm-hmm. or or keep making money because uh, the competition is such that the pie is getting split up smaller and smaller. And then if you're in a state-subsidized or partially state-subsidized uh, situation like we are here in Ireland or state-subsidized like you are in, in the U.K., there's still still market and competition pressures because there's all these other independent stations which are spinning and grinning and playing pop music and so on and and so forth, and uh, and there are various inquiries over how the, these monies are spent for the public service broadcasting and so on, and it's just a sad, unfortunate truth of the listener situation that radio drama is not going to doesn't haul in listeners like uh, news does and mm-hmm. and uh, discussion programs. So so the money and the um, 
the, the schedules are arranged so that more and more, um, with RTE anyway, that, that there's more and more kind of light magazine chat shows, uh, phone call-ins, um, you still have DJs playing music, and then you have uh, your news, your heavy, serious news for a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in drive time, and a half-hour bulletin at, l- at lunchtime. And uh, and then the little worlds of, of well-researched, crafted radio for radio documentaries and uh, radio dramas gets pushed um, to the periphery. And, to, and also, given a smaller chunk of the pie i know that uh in rt radio one's case in the past year the uh the number of hours per week or the number of minutes per week uh, for radio drama was was chopped down quite a bit i i don't know i can't remember the ratio but anyway a good at least a quarter of it was whacked off so that's a smaller chunk allotted to it so it's it's uh, being marginalized and in the case of the BBC, which has the play on in the afternoon and some on the evening and some drama on Radio 3 and stuff, it's it's uh, what I've been told called a cookie-cutter situation where they turn around a play and uh, they record a half hour of dialogue in a day and then another day is spent post-producing it and then there, there you are, thank you very much, that's your radio drama, hmm. and out it goes. And they... they, they uh, they have a commissioning editor and a panel of editors and stuff, and they, they do spend time on the scripts, and they, by and large, hire good and reputable voice actors. But production-wise, it's not terribly exciting. It's not like a movie. When you, If you go to uh, the pre-Europa radio drama awards and you hear the entries from around the continent, from continental Europe, most of them sound like you know audio blockbuster movies. Right. And they can spend six weeks post-producing something that's an hour long. And that's the kind of budgets that they have. Well, not, not so the BBC and not so RTE. I mean, well, RTE, I know in the, the past year, um, managed to mount a production that had an outside director who I think also produced it. And the RTE person in charge of the project managed to somehow rob Peter, Paul, and Mary to get a huge budget together and time to post-produce it so that they could have something that was of a standard that had a reasonable chance of winning something at the Europa, and it did. It won not the not either of the main awards, but it won one of the one of the side awards, which was which was good. But basically, that's how you do it. You have to spend time on these things because they just the, that's the tr- trick, you know. People, you ask me how do how come your stuff sounds so good? Yeah. I said, well, take six, take four weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> take four weeks out of your life and work yeah. on a half an hour. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know, and uh, that's why that and, and having the technology and kind of mm-hmm. kind of knowing how to use it, you know. Yeah, and but also uh, uh, having a good script yeah. and good actors and mm-hmm. stuff. You know, and in light of this, the, the one little ray of hope um, that I've seen is just the the popularity of the internet, and it certainly has spawned its whole array of, as you mentioned, the you know aliens from outer space invading the balloon studio and the and the OTR spinoffs. But there are um, you know legitimate um, new producers who you know sort of like independent movie making have found audio uh, to be you know something that's accessible, uh, inexpensive, and a way to create. Uh, a piece of work and 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 share it with people uh, more easily uh, than it probably was, you know, ten, fifteen years ago. But do you think that that uh, first is enough to uh, change the the tide overall? 
No. No. <laughs> no. Sorry. Yeah. And what do you? What do you? What I think it'll create a niche, uh, yeah. a niche where p- people can do their crazy projects and and have fun and let others listen and have some fun. But I don't think it's gonna change the the tide of of the way every, everything is going. You know. Yeah. I just don't. I think if if if. Yeah. Is there? Uh, if people, if people are, if their script is good enough, good enough to make money good enough to attract people then they will turn it into a film or they'll turn it into a TV show mm-hmm. they won't turn it into an audio thing I, I know for a fact that uh, for example Dirk Maggs who produced all the uh, who's the best in the world Dirk Maggs based in the UK he produ- produced and adapted all the uh, sequel scripts for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and following the success of that and the tremendous they had I don't know Several millions of extra hits on the BBC website as a result of those radio shows. Right. Yeah. The biggest ever. And as a result of that, they, Dirk and other parties and the Douglas Adams people formed something called Perfectly Normal Productions, which was going to be a production company to, to really build on this momentum and start turning out audio drama and doing kind of audio movies. Everything that Dirk did that, that made him so famous and a legend in the uh, ni- late 80s and 90s for the BBC. They were going to do that. And they had they had money behind them and serious business people, and they it couldn't get off the ground because um, despite the names and the goodwill and everything, when it came to the crunch, business people wouldn't invest in it yeah. because the market, what they could see of it, was still not big enough to justify any kind of serious entrepreneur investing millions in it. Because you can invest millions in it, and you won't make millions back. And the way capitalism works is if you put in a million, you want to get like five or ten million back. That's how they work. They don't want to get a million back if they put a million in, you know? And they certainly don't want to get 500,000 back if they put in a million. (coughs) So, so... From, you know, when I heard the news about that, that was an eye opener. Yeah. It's just, it's just not going to happen. It's, it'll provide a, it'll provide a space for for amateurs, and for people who are maybe going to go on to be professionals in related fields to to practice their craft and hone their craft and do things and so on, uh, and um, and then they'll go on, they'll go on to those to those professions. They won't stay around doing stuff for free yeah. <laughs> because nobody is that wealthy anymore that they can <laughs> yeah, yeah. do stuff for free their whole lives. Yeah, and, and then uh, f- so if there were to be hope in this situation, we, we're looking at uh, either sweeping governmental shifts or sweeping economic shifts, which are frankly a little overwhelming, huh? I think so. It's a, it's a, it's a pity. The, you know, the BBC have an in- interesting model where they very often they'll they'll uh people will put on shows a, a very familiar route is this funny people will get together actors and they'll put together uh, a funny show they'll bring it to edinburgh it'll play at the festival the bbc will have scouts there they'll see this show they'll say this has potential this might make a good tv series so 
we'll put them on radio. Mm-hmm. We'll bring them in and we'll take their show and we'll ask them about, can you make it into six half-hour programs for BBC Radio 4 or uh, BBC 7? And they'll, and they'll do it. And then all their marketing people and their listener survey people and so on will watch and see how these radio shows do. And if it does well enough and there's a big enough buzz, then instead of spending ten thousands on it, they'll bring it to television and spend several hundreds of thousands on it, right. or if not more, to turn the same scripts, basically, and adapt them for television and turn them into television shows. And time and time again, I mean, this is the this is exactly what they do. This is uh, it's not a secret. This is their official policy of how they develop things. So they have radio as a testing ground. It's a pity that uh, you know national public radio in the states and stuff didn't have something similar, so that uh, writers willing to to do things would would get onto radio to test uh, you know to test things and make things for radio with the view that, well, if it's really good, it might get onto television, we might turn it into a TV series, but sure. it doesn't doesn't work that way in the States. So um, back to uh, what's actually uh, the immediate future as far as Crazy Dog. What do you have uh, going on right now? Um, any new works um, in, the, in the works? Well, um, at the moment, I'm writing a stage play for the Gaiety School of Acting. I'm commissioned to write one of their graduation plays. So, so this year I'm writing an hour-long stage play for a cast of 10, which will be put, uh, produced in Dublin this June. Mm-hmm. And I'm also also going to do the sound design for this show and also for another show, which I don't know anything about yet, other than that they want me to do the sound design for it. So I'll have to find out whether it's going to be what, what it is. But So that will occupy me till June. And then after that, it all goes blank. It, it appears that Crazy Dog has not been commissioned by RTE this year, mm-hmm. or we haven't got an official response yet. And the response that we have got has been informal and it seems to be a no so so um i'm thinking of going back to square one and perhaps doing something that uh will form the basis of the next crazy dog stage show but will start out as something that we'll do on radio or as an audio production and uh look to put it out on the internet or uh attract interest through zbs and uh, people like you in the united states i, I have um, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now, and I have, I'm have i a lucky person in that I have a lot of actor friends who are willing to, to cooperate with me on a, on a venture or something. So so that's the immediate future. And then, and then in March, I'm going over to London just to do a, a performance in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Dirk Maggs is, is uh, organizing a special... Um, charity night in conjunction with the Douglas Adams Trust, which is uh, getting reuniting all the members of the original cast and myself, who I'm I've replaced uh, the now deceased David Tate, who originally played Eddie, the shipboard computer, but I'm the new voice of Eddie. Uh, I've been on the uh, tertiary and uh, quintessential phases of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so so I'll go over there for that performance, and we'll see what happens and uh, have fun. Great. And uh, that's what's going on at the moment. Wow, well... Self-employed, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. That's part of the 
the ulcer, the ulcer fun of the self-employed <laughs> artistic lifestyle. Yeah, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, paying so, your dues. Wow, and it, and it it's quite t- just to hear that you even yourself, um, with all the incredible work you have, still have struggled just to you know be able to still do what you do is is, is pretty humbling. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm, I'll be fifty this year. Yeah. But look at Dave Murray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cannot get over this. This this guy, he and I. Six weeks ago, or four weeks ago, five weeks ago, on New Year's Eve, he and I were getting 200 euro each. I, I dressed up as Spock, and he dressed up as Captain Kirk in a nightclub in Dublin on New Year's Eve to count down 10, 9, 4, you know, whatever, to the midnight <laughs> on stage. Uh, and we got 200 euro each. And now, six weeks later, he has a multi-million, I kid you not, a multi-million dollar three movie deal with Paramount and he's going to star in this G.I.G. Joe movie as Destro and uh, it's just uh, amazing I mean he, he's you know he was Philip in Infidel and he was Jack Sabacle in The Last Harbinger and he was uh, Johnny Gallagher in The Salmon of Blackpool and D- Dave is uh, he and I have been working together since for the last 15-16 years so mm. it's amazing to see that this can happen, you know. And then, and curiously, uh, did his radio work uh, influence um, their decision to to pick him out? Uh, is that no. Just, oh. <laughs> you go on Dave Murray's website. He just started a www.davidmurray.ie, his own website. And it the only time it mentions Crazy Dog is when he has his, like his biography. Yeah. Uh, but when you go to his uh, curriculum vitae, when it lists, it just tells his film work and his stage work. Yeah, so it's he doesn't put down his radio work. I mean, radio work doesn't. This this will tell you now, listeners, mm. the standing of professional radio work compared to film and television. It, it doesn't even appear because uh, it in the United States it doesn't mean anything. You know, it would here. You mm-hmm. you put your radio work down because people say, oh yeah, you've done some RTE gigs or you've done some BBC gigs. Good, good. You know, whereas in the States it's like you did radio. What's that? Like, how were you alive in 1939? <laughs> Oh, well, on that uh, slightly dark note, uh, Roger, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I, do you know if this uh, piece with the Hitchhiker's Guide, do you know if that's going to be rebroadcast in a place where people can uh, hear it? I doubt that very much because it's oh. going it's to—it's a, it's a one-off thing for charity. And Dirk was talking about maybe if the response is good and X, Y, and Z, it—it it might be something that could be developed into like a kind of stage show or something that we do regularly or something like that which mm-hmm. I'm certainly open to but but uh, but because you know we're all people are donating their services and free so the, the, way, the way that that will happen is that it's on a Wednesday night and we will all arrive in that theater probably Wednesday mid-morning mm-hmm. and rehearse it for about four hours and then we'll just do it and fly by the seat of our pants Fair so enough. I'm not sure that <laughs> what you would hear would be a really, really slick yeah. uh, production. And besides, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of the whole Douglas Adams tribute thing mm-hmm. and stuff, so, so it's, it's going to be in the spirit of fun and for charity and so on. So. All right. Well, it may be worth uh, cashing in the frequent flyer miles for that one then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us uh, both about Salmon and about um, the rather 
dire state of audio, but, you know, all the same for those... Well, I only speak the... Let's qualify that. I only yeah. speak the dire state of professional Fair enough. audio. Yeah. yeah. If people... I'm only talking about people who think I could make a living at this. This could be right. my job. Quit, quit my day that's job. All, that's who I'm on talking to. Yeah. Because the yeah. internet is free and open and nothing's stopping anybody from making stuff, and they should. Yeah. But I'm just talking in reference to people who want to... who would dream about trying to make this into a, a career that they could make a buy a house and a lawnmower with. Yeah, you're not going to be able to finance too many cars with your uh, radio uh, production living, at least here in no. uh, most countries. Uh, well, oh, thank you again, Roger. Um, Thanks, obviously, um, you can check out crazydogaudiotheater.com. Um, and in addition to the podcast, I know that on ZBS they have just about everything you've done, um, some of it in CDs, uh, a lot of it downloadable as MP3, so you can get it now. Um, Roger, uh, thanks so much again. Thanks, Fred. And that was the inevitable Roger Gregg, head of Crazy Dog Audio Theatre, uh, crazydogaudiotheatre.com, and I guarantee it won't be too much more time before we have another piece of his on the show. For now, however, we are going to shift gears, and we're going to a work of what's called audio soap opera. If you're grimacing, uh, believe me, I had the same reaction when I first heard about it, but the story is much more compelling than the genre would have you believe. It's all about a small Louisiana oil town and the characters that make it a ferocious place to be. Betrayal, affairs, corruption, all that and more as we hear Eye of the Storm, and no, it ain't Katrina. Uh, And if you can't wait that long, recall, you can always catch out on the blog and podcast uh, www.radiodramarevival.com You can read more audio theater news, reviews, and discussion as well as subscribe to the weekly show. And if you prefer, check us out on iTunes, Radio Drama Revival. And that wraps it up for this week. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great week.